Right, so I thought I would just share a, a little bit of my notes recently. Um, long story short, I've pretty much come upon my own personal theory for myself. It works for me. I call it uh, Gestalt Malaise. Uh, so there's a reason why. Uh, gestalt is uh, gestalt in um, psychology or philosophy, this idea that it's about the whole, holism, right? So there's no separation between mind and body and psychology, a complete uh, healing package. Very, very apropos and relevant, right? But it goes one step further because it says that the, the self is greater than its parts, right? So there's a meta in there that Gestalt doesn't even embrace. The fact that, you know, we are meta creatures like uh, placebo. Um, so uh, next. All right, so as I said, uh, malaise, uh, which is a French word just meaning, you know, a sickness. But, but uh, I relate it to uh, when Jung uh, was writing about his own um, patients, and he said he found the majority of his patients suffered from a malaise that, well, at least the majority of his patients that suffered from a malaise that didn't have a, uh, an obvious cause. He felt the majority of these people were actually lacking a sense of meaning or direction or value, right? Um, kind of like the existential idea. I've mentioned this before that I think it definitely came from Nietzsche, and uh, Jung was very much uh, um, inspired by uh, Nietzsche and Zarathustra. And you can see that in, um, uh, it was a, a collection of seminars, speeches that Jung gave, uh, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. And in it, specifically, there is one seminar called Modern Man in Search of a Soul. And on page 163, but technically the entire seminar, you'll actually... Uh, you'll see within that where he talks about there was something that happened post-World War I um, when, what's what Nietzsche was talking, warn us about these nihilists that didn't care about anything, right? So they didn't see uh, the destruction and the death and the senseless uh, madness uh, of the First World War. They didn't see that as bringing about something more. Uh, it's uh, You think of T.S. Eliot's... Uh, the hollow man, we are the hollow man, uh, row upon row stuffed, uh, head pieces filled with straw, right? These nihilists that are pseudo-modern men, as, uh, as Jung was saying, right? Pseudo-modern because they're pretending to carve for themselves a new path in this new world, but really they're not, right? They're either carrying forward uh, traditions uh, or walking around completely unconscious, as he said, uh, was uh, the source of the majority of evil in this universe. Well, that's because people don't uh, pay attention. Right. All right, so the further I go is I was looking into um, the movement towards religion recently, and Gen Z supposedly sees religion, organized religion, as toxic, uh, and they deny the self deny the body, and deny meta. I shouldn't say Gen Z. I don't know why I'm, I put that in there. It was um, related to an article. I was looking into uh, whether Gen Z had turned their back on religion altogether, and actually the numbers show that they're turning towards spirituality, but they've turned their back on organized religion. 
But at the same time, I have this sense that this was written about by Nietzsche, so not the pseudo-modern men, as, as Jung said, but the last man, uh, somebody uh, compelled. Well, I'm compelled, but how about... Uh, uh, apathy. Completely... Uh, completely... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a quote from one of my movies. Um, I say I'm compelled by apathy. Others are not. Others are most definitely uh, dealing, consumed by apathy. My apologies. So it's a quote from Bad Day at Black Rock, a great movie from the 1955, I believe. And the quote is, consumed by apathy. Right. So it's this idea that uh, you know nothing matters anymore. Right. So why bother? All right, so what I was getting at with that um, note was that denying humanity by denying um, the whole, that's where my gestalt comes in, right? So uh, right, cognition being emergent uh, by denying either the cognition or the body or the fact that we are greater than the sum of our parts is denying our humanity, is denying our existence. And that's what Nietzsche was writing about, the idea of um, heaven being our true uh, destiny instead of embracing uh, this world. I mean, I have a weird theory. I can't remember who uh, I can attribute it to, but this idea that heaven could be... Uh, could be there to teach us that it's 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 the world with with all of its stakes that make it worthwhile meaning if heaven is so perfect and infinite and all this jazz if you go up to heaven uh, a perfect uh, score in any sport say bowling I do make the joke of bowling so a, a perfect 300 I think is the perfect score in bowling I don't think it's a perfect score, but just imagine perfecting your, your bowling. Now, if you had infinite time and infinite uh, opportunity uh, to perfect it, well, how much value do you get out of that? Right? I equate it to um, teaching your child to ride a bike. I mean, you can teach them to ride a bike by holding on to the seat, uh, but... The idea here is to empower them to feel like they're an agent in their own destiny. So the idea is to support them. Let them know that you're there if, if they need you. If they're going to fall over, you'll support them. But making sure that when they do accomplish the feat, learn to ride the bike, they've done it on their own, which is you as support. Um, you know, a kind of like a meta support. But in reality, um, they did it themselves. And the more they realize that, the more they embrace that, the more they understand this truth. This is Nietzsche's eternal return. This is pratitya samudpada. This is cause and effect. This is uh, karma yoga uh, from the Bhagavad Gita. The entirety of uh, all of these lessons is to treat the good and the bad, uh, treat the triumphs and the disasters as the imposters they are, right? Uh, and I go on here. Uh, that's my gestalt, as I said. Um, 
I talk a little bit about, uh, someone brought up tulpas, uh, which uh, is like a Tibetan golem, uh, which is a, a Jewish, um, kind of like a manifestation, it can be good or bad, right? Uh, Mahatmas, uh, when I was a theosophist, what we considered it were these um, great beings uh, who are responsible for the flow of things in the universe, but what we should be doing is a Greek word. It's a kenosis. It's this idea uh, of emptying oneself of this selfish aspect, this ego, and filling oneself up with a perfected image, be it Jesus, uh, Bodhisattva, um, uh, uh, Nietzsche's uh, Ubermensch, um, uh, the modern man, according to Jung, right? Uh, Blavatsky uh, and Russell both saw this as a truth. So that's uh, Helena Blavatsky of the Theosophical Society and Bertrand Russell, uh, philosopher, polymath, mathematician, whatever you want to call him. This idea that action is thought, therefore thought is action, right? Because uh, all action is, is uh, 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 pre- all action uh, requires a, a thought. Uh, and uh, Bertrand Russell talks about there is no separation between the object and the thought of the object itself, right? So I talk about um, the universality of this teaching, right? So the eternal return to, to Nietzsche, you can't just st stand up tomorrow and go, well, geez, I'm just going to brace everything as ordered and love it. You know what I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean? Good and bad, treat them as, as what they are. You have to have some sort of awakening, some sort of, um, well, William James called it um, a convergence or like being a second born. Right? I argue it's actually a Chinese expression. Um, it goes back to the Chinese Book of Change. It's a PG... Tai Lai, PG Tai Lai, commonly in four characters. This means that uh, in, with great uh, strife, great uh, struggle, comes great accomplishment, right? So uh, that's where this, this eternal return can come from, not just from William James' idea that, you know, you become a second born or twice born. It's actually found in the Trinity or koinonia in Greek, or equanimity, uh, upeka, upeksha in Sanskrit. Equanimity is a French word, uh, and it's this idea of, uh, I've mentioned it before, in uh, the Upanishads, the Isha. Uh, the uh, sixth mantra states that when you can see yourself in others, in, in all creatures, and you can see all creatures in yourself, that's when you get to this understanding of the unity this oneness of all things. That's why I say this cause and effect, this pratitya samadpada. This is why Jung warned us to be careful. Um, don't be like an archaic man who required a cause and effect to everything because we can't have a cause and effect to everything, never mind the fact that it's impossible for us to be present and aware for everything, so we're going to miss things. So that being 
that awareness, that understanding, that presence, uh, in Sanskrit we would call that um, sh uh, shanti. Shanti. Shanti being peace. Uh, very similar to shakti. Shakti is the energy that combines us all. Uh, because it's not that different, uh, we have shalom and salam. Uh, words meaning peace that can also mean the truth or the teaching or even uh, providence or divinity um, altogether. And and I guess this note actually fits. So we were having a discussion about what's the solution. Uh, you know, I mean, religious intolerance. And, and the example I've given before is it's, it's surprising that people don't understand uh, that Christmas is incredibly uh, religious in a sense, in many senses. But to understand that uh, Christmas is a paid holiday, it's a holiday everyone, um, everyone gets, and not understand how that is actually kind of like a, not just a microaggression as the kids say nowadays, but there's a solution to this. And this is why I talk about this equanimity, right? So from great uh, suffering, great comes great uh, achievements, right? And so that's why I say those that are challenged most tend to uh, have the greatest realizations, right? And, and my solution to this is, is to give holidays for all, right? So give people X amount of observance days, say five observance days a year. And with those, you can use them to observe your own holidays or even see somebody else's holidays. The example I usually give is you can go to a Sikh temple and have lunch and learn about their philosophy. You can go to, uh, to almost any um, other uh, practitioner and learn about uh, their, their philosophies. And I would argue that's our job. Uh, let's not argue over um, prayer uh, in schools. Uh, let's teach our kids the value of prayer, um, absent of uh, the, the toxicity, obviously, right? Just talk about how important it is to understand others, right? And, and as Nietzsche said, convictions are worse than lies. But the irony is uh, they're not a problem. Lies or convictions are not a problem if you consider them just a state, a transitory state. So you're not firm in your convictions. You just happen to have chosen, as uh, William James uh, and uh, Charles Sanders Pierce both agree, the idea that uh, uh, truth is only agreement. So I tend to use the word trust. Right? So I go on and talk about this idea of W.E.B.'s, uh, W.B. Du Bois' double consciousness. And I say that it's not just how you're treated, uh, but it's also whether you understand where you come from, what your meaning and your hope and, and your goal. So being firm, right, is that Descartes who said, know thyself. So that's why I argue William James' radical empiricism, right, after having developed psychology and then having um, written the definitive study on, um, what is it called, the Varieties of Religious Experience. And they list his book as um, the culmination of his study uh, of the psychology of religion. And I argue there's no separation between that religion or the psychology. And as proof, I put forward 
William James posthumously published Radical Empiricism, right? This idea, and he very clearly states that life is experiential, right? You can't define, it's not dialectical in the way uh, uh, that, you know, we can codify exactly what's going to happen. We can get an idea, but life must be lived. You must be present. But he says, just like Gestalt, this idea that we are so much more than the sum of our parts. That's, again, dependent origination. It's teaching this pratitya samutpada, this idea that um, we can't know. In fact, um, Nietzsche, in um, the, the joyful science, the gay science, writes that it, when you understand that there's beautiful patterns on the scales of reptiles, you can, of course, assume it's either for aesthetic or for protection, but when you can only see it with a microscope, then what is that? Is that just beauty for beauty's sake, was his argument, right? So I argue this is the reminder of, again, Pierce, uh, Charles Sanders Pierce, who reminded us the first rule of logic is doubt, right? Pyro in Greek, who we now know after last year, definitely was influenced by the Indian teaching, but... Uh, tet, um, uh, Pyrrhonism teaches us about the tetralemma, that we must uh, remain doubtful in the face of any certainty. And that's the Chitti Vritti Naroda. So I've talked about this a lot. Uh, the uh, philosophy of the Yoga Sutras, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, possibly, uh, well, I could go on from there, Buddhism itself. The idea is to uh, stop the uh, needless flapping of consciousness, right? Uh, chitta, consciousness, vritti, flapping, uh, naroda, to cease. It's to be focused, to be present, to not waste time or energy on needless things. Uh, God grant me the power to change the things I can and accept those that I cannot. This idea of Carl Friston's free energy, that the mind's a predictive engine, the self is just there to act as intermediary. It tells the, the brain uh, what uh, the actual outcome was. Uh, and if it lies to the brain or the self doesn't accept reality or what have you, this is what Firsting calls surprise. I call it anxiety. It's meant to teach, right? You're winning or you're learning, right? And this is uh, uh, ignorance to doubt to knowledge, right? Uh, lots of data out there, right? We need to parse that data. So that's the, uh, the reason why you need to stop the fluctuations of the mind because uh, without it, what, uh, what can you do, right? Uh, next. Huh. Well, I just wrote this down and, and I do actually like it. So I just said... Um, most practitioners are teaching pseudoscience or superstition instead of sufficiency. And what I mean by that, they're, they're teaching something that is just gaslighting yourself. Yes, I am saying that you use narrative theory to tell you how to feel and how to think and all that jazz. But you don't lie to yourself because it's in lying to yourself that we're seeing so much of this... Uh, Disconnect and, and um, uh, crisis of meaning, identity um, uh, issues. Because uh, our job is to prevent trauma, not cause it or, or make it even worse, right? Um, 
what else did I have here? <laughs> I like this here. I consider myself the philosopher's patient. The philosopher's patient. Uh, stolen somewhat from a movie. Uh, it was supposed to be about Nietzsche. I should go back and watch that again. It was a little rough, but... But this idea that uh, since I believe there is no separation between science, uh, philosophy, and uh, psychology, then we most certainly should be teaching uh, as a philosopher and healing. So why not a practice? Why is it uh, psychologists almost all have practices, but uh, almost uh, no philosopher has a patient besides himself or themselves. Uh, let's see here. These are just notes we were talking about, right? Compelled by apathy or consumed by apathy. Uh, I have this weird theory about why so many people don't like audiobooks versus reading books. It, it has to do with focus and the amount of brain uh, matter it takes to actually see and, and to... to uh, you know, visually, how much of your brain is devoted to uh, uh, visuals. Um, the Herd from Nietzsche. Uh, a big thing that I mention is the mistranslation of, um, or not mistranslation, but just the oversimplification of a lot of the translations, particularly Nietzsche. Right. It's nice, a few little notes. But that's pretty much what I wanted to get into. I, I wanted to talk about uh, what I thought was both... I actually think it's pretty uh, pretty fancy, this idea of uh, gestalt malaise. Because within it, we have both the teaching of what the problem is and the solution. So gestalt being... Actually, I didn't say the complete, did I? So the gestalt is there's no separation between mind and body, right? you got to be treated as a whole, but... Gestalt goes one step further, and it's kind of freaky because it talks about that face and vase, uh, what they call or the Rubens Cube, um, being able to see uh, white space. It's meta. It's, it's absolutely meta. So the example I've given before as a dyslexic, I have this weird superpower. I cannot be fooled for the most part by these optical illusions. Right, the example is, uh, e, um, is it E.C. Escher? M.C. Escher. M.C. Escher. He, he did a lot of those famous optical illusion pictures, like with the staircases that go nowhere and, and such. But if you look at the faces and the vases, it's very specific. I've used this as examples for years now without actually having known, because, again, philosophy and psychology are usually separate. But the last couple of years, I have uh, removed those... Uh, what would you call them? The, remove the demarcations. Now within uh, Gestalt is also this teaching of uh, figure-ground. That may seem simple or it may seem like it fits my philosophy on the surface, but it doesn't. It doesn't because the figure in the ground speaks to when you're looking at one of these optical illusions. And as I said, they can be faces or a vase, if you're familiar with that optical illusion. So what they say is uh, there's a specific term for vacillation between um, these two pictures. And what I've come to realize is this 
is what metta is. Metta, or meaning beyond the self, is no different from this vacillation between the faces and the vases. Uh, for most people, it takes a tremendous amount of conscious effort. Sometimes they're unable to even switch between. Once they see one, that's all they can see. Others can switch between with, with effort. Then there are others who can consciously, easily, regularly, uh, even arguably ceaselessly switch. I have argued in the past that uh, the dyslexic sees both, but I've spent some time uh, studying this and, and uh, actually uh, experimenting. And it's just um, kind of like what I joke about um, uh, multitasking. There's no such thing as multitasking. You're just uh, quickly switching between tasks. So that's actually what the dyslexic is doing. So we're not fooled by the, what do you call it, uh, optical illusion. We're just able to vacillate between the two. So almost immediately, it's like what I explained, that I have this um, superpower that I'm able to... Uh, near perfectly and near uh, infallibly uh, I'm able to uh, complete one of those mazes uh, you know the mazes they give you where you got to find your way out um, 9 to 95% uh, 9 out of 10 to 95% of the time um, I literally don't even make a single mistake so this goes to this idea that the mind in Gestalt, sees the world as um, patterns, not component parts. So I know I've taken a long time to get this point, but this is the beauty of the Gestalt malaise uh, theory, I guess I could call it, or protocol. So the problem is also the solution, believe it or not. So our problem is that we don't pay attention to this vacillation, this Gestalt the difference between meaning and the noumenal world, so the boring and the exciting, the good, the bad, the triumph and the disaster, the duality, the uh, whatever you'd want to call it, the uh, veta in, in Sanskrit. So the solution, believe it or not, is within the problem. So the problem first is this gestalt malaise. Even within Gestalt philosophy, the mistake is resonant because they say the problem is we don't realize uh, that we are a whole and that there's something more to the parts themselves. That's that uh, dependent origination I mentioned before. But the problem in Gestalt therapy and, well, Gestalt psychology, I'm using them both interchangeably, I apologize, but the problem here lies is that they admit the importance of metta. Uh, and they talk about this uh, figure ground, right? And it applies too. So it's not just figure ground, seeing uh, the component parts and the pattern, uh, you know, separately. The question here is understanding this truth that we don't see in the simple example is a cat or a dog, right? You don't see the tails, the feet, the hair, the eyes, all the separate component parts. You put it together, right? The mind. We see uh, order in chaos. That's literally what we, we, uh, we are. 
But the secret to this, and this is why I say the dyslexic has a superpower, the secret is the vacillation. The secret to why we all suffer from this gestalt malaise is because we don't realize that we have the power, the, the arbitrary power to decide what is good and what is bad, what is meaning and what is worthless. So the entirety of this argument is found within this figure ground teaching of gestalt, but not in the simple, pedantic, scientific way that they uh, try to explain it. So this figure ground has to do with, yes, just like Yogacara. Um, they explain this in the same way. There's an argument in Buddhism. If everything is a manifestation of the mind, then the world can't exist. So what is the conventional noumenal world that we are all trapped in? So Yogacara's answer to this is simple is, yes, you're right. It is all mind, and it is the conventional reality we all live in. So it's this inability to vacillate between the fact that we know that what we see and experience is but a shade, kind of like Plato's cave allegory. What we see is a shade of what truly is reality. And, and for fact, uh, we can never really know the complete and entirety of these truths. So the teaching in Gestalt Malays uh, teaches us I know I said that too many times, but the teaching is simple. What we have to do is simply look at the truth of this figure ground and the holism and understand that whether you believe that you have power greater than, you know, provable science or uh, conventional reality, whether you don't uh, believe or whether you do, it's the trust that's required. We see the same problem. Uh, you can be an atheist and still be a productive member of society because you find your meaning in value and in society and people. But the same can be said for the religiously devout. If they don't see that meta and, and, and that it matters, right? they can do evil in, in good's name and not see that that's where the problem lies. So I argue this gestalt malaise. So we only suffer, as literally what Vedanta teaches, teaches uh, we only suffer because we don't, we already know that we live a non-dual life. We just don't admit it. And so there is your meditation, your mindfulness, uh, your Vedantic um, practice is to constantly remind yourself that Om Tat Sat, uh, I uh, am uh, complete, I am the universe, I am Shakti. Um, and once you've achieved this understanding, this non-dual understanding, it's at that point where you have peace, right? That's um, Shanti. But it's, it's the same thing. Shanti is peace, but peace... Uh, only comes when you embrace and understand the truth and the teaching that you are not you, you're just a construct. Um, I've said this before, a configuration file like in computers. You're just a list of preferences. Just a list of preferences that is powered 
by a power greater than yourself. If you've listened to me at all, you know that I'm not a, a religious person by any stretch. All I mean is having trust. The example I'll give is, is I never understood where I found my trust myself. Like I grew up arguably not the end of the world, but um, there was some challenges, some very serious challenges. Uh, family uh, dealt with uh, a number of challenges, uh, some multi-generational issues. Um, and yet, even though everything told me that uh, there, there is no rhyme or reason or hope, um, faith to be had in the human creature, I never lost that hope. I mean, I've said this before that I very uh, strongly believe that um, madness never killed uh, Nietzsche. It was his loss of hope, loss of faith in the human creature, right? He wrote his uh, book, uh, Zarathustra, in the hopes that he could tell us that this is what we need to do. Uh, the gods didn't die. They, they were never born because we never believed in them. That's why he says God is dead because we created them in our image but to remind us to be better, to be moral, that we are a meta-creature. We're something special. And because we turned our backs on that, we turned our backs on morality and on truth and what matters to us, again, on agreement, on tribalism, on society, on the sangha, on the group of like-minded individuals. I've said this before, tribalism is not bad. Same as anxiety. It's informative or traumatizing, right? So anxiety or tribalism, uh, shortcut to trust, um, a way to remind us to learn and, and be uh, informed by some of this silly stuff, right? Um, I talked a little bit about the ACE study. Um, this is the uh, Adverse Childhood Experience, and it gives you an idea as uh, where we're at. I talk, uh, talk a lot about uh, safety, right? And, and that's a big part of trauma theory, why uh, so many people... Uh, can't heal from the trauma because they don't have a sense of safety or they don't, can't feel safe somewhere. And I was talking to a gentleman who was a little bit worried because, right, intelligence sometimes uh, correlates with madness or um, so long story short, this gentleman has a family uh, that uh, has a history of uh, being supremely intelligent but also supremely uh, what would you say uh, maladapted <laughs> and so I came to realize that the big difference is not intelligence but the idea of having an inner life right being able to retreat so my inner safety my inner inner life uh, is where I found my safety Right. That's funny because that's uh, Nietzsche again. It's uh, don't look too long into the void, uh, lest the void look back into your soul. It's both a warning and a piece of advice because that's what we experience. I don't know if you've ever noticed. You go into a great challenge, uh, if you've ever done uh, like a sweat lodge experience or a fasting experience, what you come away with is an understanding that it's... um. Uh, it's challenge. It's in challenge that uh, we are born. 
uh, like a diamond. I've said this before, right? Pressure and experience is what produces. Uh, I said that, right? P, uh, what is it? PG Thailai, right? So uh, with great uh, challenge comes great achievement, right? Um, yeah, well, Gestalt, uh, with my Yi Jing reading, um, I mean, it was a, th it's a, th a thousand, a few thousand years old, the, the Chinese Book of Change, and within it is the same teaching. I guess I'll leave it at, um, I guess I'll leave it at that, uh, because my point is exactly the same, because, um, there's another quote that says, um, uh, how we get through this together, right? The multitude is uh, realizing that we're all in the same boat, sharing weal and woe. I love that quote, right? Just to see the metta, right? Wow, geez, I have quite a few notes after that, but uh, I would say approaching 40 minutes is about the, the, uh, the Uber, Uber Alice, the absolute maximum that uh, most people would want to go to right but yeah so that's what i wanted to share with uh i personally think um like uh, aldous huxley wrote uh, aldous huxley and w.e.b du bois uh, i both believe that if they were writing today uh they would have been more willing to uh to say what they really wanted to say uh, W.B. Du Bois said uh, this uh, issue of double consciousness, this means being separated from what you know to be true or what you, you hold to be true, can cause this disconnect, this uh, trauma, this, this uh, bifurcation of the self. Um, and uh, who else did I say... Uh, W. Du Bois and uh, oh yes, um, Huxley. Uh, Aldous Huxley wrote uh, the perennial philosophy. So I believe that if it would have been socially acceptable at the time, that Aldous Huxley would have written his book as being the universal or um, the uh, a friend of mine gave me this uh, like an Indo-Euro philosophy, something that um, is not like but identical to, uh, possibly even influenced by, right? But unless, uh, unless I'm wrong, um, I think the same with Du Bois. He talked about the, uh, the double consciousness for the Irish, uh, for the, uh, the souls of the black folk, uh, souls of the Irishmen, uh, the Hungarians. He gave a long list of individuals he felt were disenfranchised and thereby uh, suffered from this double consciousness. And I argue he would have included some other uh, groups like the indigenous peoples, which still today we can probably see um, a level of, uh, of ignorance uh, that might actually be harming us because this teaching is resident uh, in, uh, in the indigenous uh, philosophies as well because when they greet each other, uh, it reminds them each and every time of their, uh, their creator and the story of... Um, of equanimity, because they greet each other with Ginanda um, Winabuzu, uh, which essentially it's not just don't just you'll have to trust me on this. There's a couple of greetings, and they mean are you the the creator returned? Because there's another one Ginanda uh, Winabuzu. 
No, sorry. Winanimate. And So one of them means, are you the creator returned? Because the story said that uh, you'll never know who the creator is because you're just going to take a form just like everyone else. So their greeting is, are you the creator returned to earth? And then uh, the other one actually just means we are all the same or we are all connected, which is another greeting, right? So it means the same as uh, namaskar, uh, namaskaram in, uh, in Sanskrit, in India. The idea that uh, my soul, my atman greets your atman, right? Meaning I, I give abeyance to the fact that we are both uh, part of the same source, as it were, right? Um, yeah. Actually, that was uh, was a couple of notes uh, on my avatar theory. Again, I think um, as another example, actually, is um, so the reason why online um, vitriol is so rampant. If you remember the dawn of the internet and internet gaming, uh, you would uh, play with friends or, say, land parties, right, which a bunch of people would get their computers together and they'd all play video games together. But then fast forward to Xbox Live, and I argue that was the dawn of the Avatar Age. Because when you were playing games and talking online, you were talking smack with essentially an avatar, right? Because they were from around the world and, you know, who knows where they were, who they were. They might have been faking their voice. They were, like Young said, they were all playing a, a persona. But, you know, the worst, the worst possible. Um, so the idea... All right, so my idea is um, once... Uh, you were no longer seeing the person on the other end of this line, internet or otherwise, as a human being, just as a simple avatar. You misunderstood. You misunderstood. Uh, and thereby, that's where this toxicity came in. But that's the teaching of actually the avatar, like Krishna. When Krishna, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita spoke to Arjuna, um, that was the teaching he gave him. Fear not in battle because you cannot strike down another's Atman. An Atman is undestroyable. But as I said earlier, when you can see all creatures in yourself and all and yourself and all creatures, that's when you understand the teaching of the Atman. And that's the avatar theory that I think we've become toxified because we're not being influenced by things like our hormones, oxytocin, right? I, I call it the the, uh, the anti-tribalism hormone, right? I'd have to probably modify that now that I consider tribalism uh, uh, beneficial if it's used properly. So same as this idea, right? Uh, the individual is useful as long as you understand you are... Uh, part of the greater whole. There is no uh, separation between the two, right? And uh, I know it seems weird, but uh, how it's it, it really it does relate to the idea of free will. So I'll give an example. Um, in these circles of people who like to argue about free will, there was a study that came out a while back that supposedly disproved free will because the title of the study was uh, the un unconscious bias, blah, blah, blah. And then that was kind of disproved. But it's neither here nor there to understand that 
if if a, a study was ever funded with the title "Unconscious Bias Just Proves the, the the Existence of Free Will" or something like that, they didn't say that that unconscious bias impinges on free will. Their 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 uh, their takeaway was there is no free will. But I equate it to um, kind of the the examples in the Bible when uh, they talk about in the Old Testament whether. God can be omniscient, but also not look everywhere. So I argue it's similar to the trauma theory of never doing something for someone that they can do for themselves because it robs them of, of their agency. And I wonder if there's a lesson in there, right? This idea that there's no separation of the person from your environment, uh, the body or mind is inseparable. Therefore, the metta, of the universe um, is, well, I mean, as I said, I personally think uh, there's no separation between um, meta and, um, well, meta and meaning, but there's no separation between, uh, well, that's my gestalt. When I say there's no separation between psychology and philosophy, uh, person in the body, um, I really think there's no difference between how how we all experience, you know, these these truths, uh, ritual, ceremony, right? It only fails if we don't put in the required um, commitment and confidence, right? Uh, but literally, I think that's also uh, by design. Uh, we're meant to lose our faith uh, because it's in those uh, darkest uh, darkest days. Uh, in fact, I stole it from a Christian uh, philosopher, apologetic. I don't know what he was. Uh, famous uh, a long time ago. I just don't remember his name. But he talked about uh, that this journey is a dark passage. Not like the Buddhists that will talk about, you know, it's the dark night of the soul and it's a temporary thing. But no. The fact that this is once again a vacillation. So we vacillate, like Nietzsche says, between good and bad, because they both serve a purpose. And that's Nietzsche's eternal return. When we no longer label uh, good and bad in the way we do, when we just label it as experience, as Vedanta would. There's no separation between a thought or an action. It's all experience, right? So what you label as good... What I might label as bad might not be to each other, but more importantly, it's all about perception and place, right? Pertinence. So arguably having that sense of doubt, right? Oh, by the way, it's called the Chetaskoti in Sanskrit. This idea that, well, it might be this, it might be that, it might be both, or it might be none of the above. So it's that sense of doubt so if you can see a sense of doubt and be guided by trust but not be discouraged by, you know, stumbles along the way. If you can see metta as both doubt and trust, right? a, a signpost to wisdom, to knowledge, right? You have to transform ignorance into doubt before you can become, well, hopefully knowledgeable, 
but before it can become insight, right? So I've mentioned that, right? Pierce, um, Aldous Huxley, uh, the Tetralemma, um, a belief on a universal philosophy, not as much of a perennial one. Oh, this is nice. Someone gave me a cool little idea. This idea of um, if genes and if uh, genes and language are passed, um, right? Like the idea of Indo and European languages, Aryan uh, languages. I've mentioned this before that Sanskrit might have been a proto, or there was a proto language, influenced German, maybe even Gaelic. Uh, why not philosophy? Why can't philosophy be uh, be universal and, and passed down, right? And I've talked about the scrolls of the wizards of the Anishinaabe people, right? They they were keeping histories and legends and, and spells, you know what I mean by spells, ideas, philosophies, written down on birch bark scrolls for centuries. But in our modern museums, they only display these uh, birch bark scrolls from the outside. And they claim that uh, they were just pictures until contact because they had no reason to develop a language until contact. It's... The height of ignorance, right? Same can be said, uh, I was discussing, um, there's new scholarship around um, the sacrifice in, in Aztec uh, society. And it reminded me that uh, when I was learning about that, I found it a little weird that their sacrifice included, uh, you know, removal of the heart and if they were trying to burn the heart. I, with a background in science, I couldn't imagine it being easy to do back then to burn a heart probably the hardest thing in the body to burn next to bones um but uh yeah i talked about du bois uh and how important history is because you can't i've said this before narrative theory can give you uh, an advantage when when you want to establish your identity if some of it's lost but you can't uh, establish it in lies, right? So that's why it's important that history uh, and, and again, uh, convictions uh, and lies, attachment, uh, right? All of these things impinge on uh, true understanding and insight. Uh, so that will impinge on you having a, a healthy identity, right? So your ancestors and lost history is kind of important. I've said warriors need a balance, but so do a poet, Right? So all people need to find a middle way. That doesn't mean, as Nietzsche said, that you're giving up everything as an aesthetic or become a hedonist. But finding a balance. You don't deny anything, uh, but not too much. Right? Uh, and then I have uh, a few notes. Transcend their bodies. Right? It's a question, right? Since consciousness is definitely embodied, like... Can we transcend our bodies? And uh, I personally think that's uh, what the Gestalt malaise is about, this idea of um, we've been dragging our feet on moving from the postmodern era into the metamodern. I consider myself now a metamodern philosopher because this Gestalt malaise is solved by this movement uh, embracing the movement of metamodernism, right? This idea of personal, individual meaning in in the universe, in medicine as well, science, right? Uh, cults, the internet, uh, they can both be an aid or a barrier 
to this insight. And I love a friend of mine mentioned that Mace Windu uh, in, uh, in uh, Star Wars was a Jedi, right? So there's a couple different kinds of Jedis. There's a, a light side and a dark side. And then even in, in the middle is a gray Jedi. And Mace Windu arguably was a gray Jedi, like Bruce Lee, right? He took what worked and left the rest behind, right? But, uh, yeah, shadow work. Uh, and that's why I've said this a million times. That's why I consider myself a, ta a tantric uh, practitioner because, uh, like, uh, like uh, um, well, like me, um, I, I I don't consider the denial of the body to be helpful, the denial of existence. Uh, and yab yum in, in uh, Tibetan uh, philosophy is this idea of uh, male and female aspects, the same as the yin-yang, but uh, full-on tantric. So, uh, you know, copulation with a consort, that's tantric. Uh, Jujutsu in Japanese means the way of... Uh, of, uh, of of working with uh, what what you have, right? So transmuting uh, power into energy. Well, that doesn't make sense. Energy is energy. But I said transmuting into power. This idea of, um, of finding the meaning in the madness, right? I said uh, the human brain is uh, something that's able to see into... Uh, entropy and find patterns so that's what our job is even if it ain't true i've mentioned it to vacillate right vicissitudes ego depletion it's very important here uh based on what we were talking about earlier right the rubens cube right so when you're looking at an optical illusion something that can give you two different views of something sometimes more right you vacillate between them right and that's why i've mentioned vicissitudes this great english word that means life is all of these little challenges, right? And it's embracing these challenges that truly makes life worth living. But you can see the, the, uh, the dualist perspective on uh, vicissitude when they talk about the negative, right? So really, we should define it as the good and bad that we experience in life. That is existence, and that is the meaning, right? But yeah, I love that. Someone mentioned uh, a wave, right? Being, uh, right? Uh, existence as a wave, right? Oscillation. Up and down, right? Think of it like uh, sound on an oscilloscope, right? That's us, up and down. Like we can't change it. We can change the, the height of the, the peaks and, and the depth of the valleys. We can change the, the distance between the peaks and the valleys or the between the peaks and between the valleys but we can't change the fact that uh, we will oscillate right because we are waves right um but yeah i guess uh, uh if i go into some of this that's going to be my own uh copyrighted material here but to the last thing i'll say is uh, it, it, again the the chinese book of change the yijing and in it, it talks about uh, coming to this conclusion, this equanimous conclusion, this idea that we're all in this together. Is it, I can't remember what they call it in the West. But this, this universality of, of, of everything, of us, equanimity. And it says you come to the realization that we are all in the same boat, sharing weal and woe. 
I love that expression. Sharing weal and woe. So gestalt malaise. It's a non-duality. Right? So we suffer because we see the world in dualistic terms, meaning uh, the world is a bunch of patterns that we see as, uh, as, a, as a whole. But we forget that, that therefore every pattern is just made up of all these little component parts. So why don't we see that in ourselves? As I've said, it's so weird for me to tell people that, oh, well, yeah, the self is just a construct. It's like a, you know, a, we call it um, a lie of Ijnana in Sanskrit. And that just means the storehouse of the consciousness. So imagine it like um, uh, a she shed out back where you keep your preferences, um, a vision board, right? The self is nothing but uh, um, uh, a vision board in your head. And once you uh, realize what I've called before this ego recontextualization, sometimes you can get stuck in it. That dark passage can feel like derealization and depersonalization. But just like anxiety, just like nihilism, uh, even like conviction, uh, if you allow it, like the dark passages, to just be a passage, a portal, uh, to your next uh, insight or the next self, uh, then, as Nietzsche said, the, 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 the bad isn't bad if it results in, in an outcome that you can use, right? And make it to your favor. So, uh, eternal return. But on that, I guess I'll leave it. Thank you very much for listening to me for nearly an hour. Ramble on and on and on about what's arguably my own philosophy, uh, so, <laughs> thank you.